You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday at 9 a.m. for small groups, 10 a.m. for worship, or anytime at asburybosier.org. Well, good morning. Good morning to you. It's good to be back. Uh, We took the family on a spring break Washington, D.C. trip uh, this, uh, this past week. Lots of family time. Uh, in the minivan uh, this week, uh, but it was a fantastic trip. We're going to talk about, uh, talk about that today and uh, what we experienced uh, on that trip. Our scripture lesson today uh, comes from the Gospel of Mark, uh, right in the center of the Gospel, chapter 8, beginning with verse 34. And pay attention to the question that Jesus is asking us this week. It'll be on the screens, it'll be online, and it's also in your Bible. Let us hear the word of the Lord. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with his holy angels. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And you can bring it up. It's cool. It's my daughter, Anna Lee, our second, who um, loves lots of attention uh, on her. So thank you. I appreciate that. No, thank you. You have to pay me a million dollars to be 13 again. Let me just say that. Um, uh, and so forgive me um, for hydrating in front of all of you nice people. Um, every year for Christmas, uh, we get our, our children four things. We've talked about this before. Uh, we get them something they want, something they need, something to wear, and something to read. And they only get four gifts. But then on Christmas morning, the spirit of Christmas, Santa arrives. Uh, and, and offers them something to share together. So something they want, something they need, something to wear, something to read, and then something to share come Christmas morning. Uh, and this past year, Santa uh, gave our kids a trip to Washington, D.C. over spring break. And I'm still astounded how Santa knows our calendar so well and our budget so well uh, and fits us perfectly. It'd be great if he threw in some airplane tickets because we took the minivan, but... You know, we'll, we'll take it. It's a gift, Christmas morning. <clears throat> so we packed up the minivan, uh, and we went to the District of Columbia for our spring break edutainment with the kids. <clears throat> On the first day, we got there a little bit late, about 30 minutes before the, the Natural Science Museum closed. So we started there, because who doesn't want to see a Tyrannosaurus Rex eating a triceratops, like for reals, right? I love it. Robert came in and like, I mean, I thought his eyeballs were going to pop out of his face. He's like, oh my gosh, it was so cool. And then we saw like this, this we just saw all kinds of stuff. It was just fantastic. He loves to learn. Uh, what, did, what did he say? Like he sat uh, and watched this video like by himself for like 12 minutes alone, just him. So like I ordered five copies of that DVD to, to bring home uh, uh, with us that day. He loves science. He loved science as much as he hated the American History Museum, right? He said, what, what, what was it? He said, like, I'm so boring. 
this is the most boring I've ever been, is what he said. <laughs> Prayers accepted. So we spent like 30 minutes at Natural Science Museum, and then we had dinner, and we waited for the sun to set because we then wanted to bring the kids to the Lincoln Memorial. And we wanted to bring our kids to the Lincoln Memorial at night because it's just something about seeing it glowing uh, in the distance. And I, I had a powerful experience with the Lincoln Memorial when I was like, our big trip was in fifth grade was to Washington, D.C., uh, when I was a kid, and I was just awestruck. And as parents, good parents, we tried to reproduce these things for our kids. You know, I had a powerful experience at the Lincoln Memorial. Obviously, they will. You know, I played baseball. They're going to play baseball. You know, Girl Scouts, Girl Scouts, you know, this kind of a thing. Uh, so I wanted my kids to see this. I wanted them to experience this. And I love it. You know, they, we see it in the distance, and, we're, and it's only like 30 degrees and like freezing, you know, with the wind whipping, and, and we are ill-prepared. We're from Louisiana. Like we, like, we put on like a beanie and that's it. And we were like suffering. So we're walking to uh, the Lincoln Memorial. And I love that like my kids saw it. It was bigger than life. It's just this huge... You know, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the difference of architecture between like Walt Disney World and Washington, D.C. At Main Street and Disney, everything is a little smaller to scale so that you feel bigger. Because when you feel bigger, you feel safe. And you feel in charge. That's not the goal of Washington, D.C., right? You walk in and like Lincoln seated is huge. And it's to remind you of something that is bigger than yourself. And, and, and the majesty of our, of our history, uh, the good and the ill, right? Because when you get to the Lincoln Memorial, what I think is more impressive than, than the statue and, and in seeing that is on either side, on the right and the left, on one side there is the Gettysburg Address, written in stone, and also Lincoln's second inaugural address. And I remember as a kid, I was relatively familiar with Gettysburg, with the Gettysburg Address, right? Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this uh, continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, right? Uh, what I was less familiar with was the second inaugural address. <clears throat> so I directed my kids to, to see this because I didn't have the language for this when I was in fifth grade, but looking back on it, it is, it's a magnificent work it is theologically rich. You wrestle with ethics when you read it. But ultimately, it's about peace. It is about binding up a nation divided. This is what it says. This is the very, the very ending. The last panel, when you go to the last panel, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily and pass away speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continues under, until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It's fascinating that here, the president, as he starts his next term, says, we want an end to this. Yet if God wills it to continue to repay all of the harm, then so be it. But then he continues and says, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him 
who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. I didn't understand what I was seeing then in fifth grade, but looking back on that, I wanted my kids to ring with with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right. I love the lack of finitude in that, the lack of certainty. We will hold on to right as best as we understand it. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right. Therein lies the idea of doing what it takes to bind up brokenness. Offering personal sacrifice, not to destroy, but to build up. In this address, he could have supported the union. He could have said, to hell with all of you Southerners. He could have said, we're going to win this battle. We're going to win this war. He said, no, let, let us be dedicated to binding up the, bro- the brokenness and the wounded. And to care for the orphans and the widows who will be a result of this. This idea of sacrifice to build up, of course, didn't originate with Lincoln, but it does remind us that the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we need to regularly hear, preach, and practice. With this malice toward none, and charity for all, ringing in our ears, we ran across a story uh, later in the trip. It was actually a podcast that, that Christy was listening to. See, when we're driving around, she listens to Smithsonian Institute podcasts, I listen to disco on Spotify and try to find new songs that fit the same vibe. I will share the playlist later. It's been extraordinary work of building this Spotify playlist of songs separated by decades that have the same vibe. You're welcome is what I'm trying to say. Like, you're welcome. But we came across a Smithsonian podcast about uh, a story. It's about light pollution, but a story from the, uh, the global, uh, uh, the, the Boston Globe in 1942, and it says this. Everyone who has been to sea, sea meaning the ocean, the sea, or even out in the darkness of the country knows the umbrella of radiance which hangs brilliantly over every city, active town, or industrial concentration. Like the spray from a fountain, light from sky glow radiates out in all directions. And it's talking about a story Uh, that around the time, uh, early 40s, downtown uh, cities like Boston had recently adopted electric light for their downtown shops uh, to extend commerce. And that's the good of it, is that it extended commerce in a new way uh, with, with safe and secure electricity. That's the good of it. The bad, however, it comes at a great and terrible cost. Remember, this is 1942. And what was happening right off of the shore of Boston is that merchant ships were being taken one by one by German U-boats. They were sitting ducks. Why? Because the boat was in silhouette against the light from the downtown city. And the government begged and pleaded for the shop owners to turn off their lights. And on the whole, they refused because it would be bad for business. It's shocking to me 
that that would be even a debate. Why would you not turn off the lights of your shop to save the sailors that are in the haba? Right? It's shocking to me that they cared more about the bottom line than their fellow man, that they cared about the competition of commerce rather than their comrades. They were happy to call sailors heroes so long as they could keep the lights on. I've heard it said we call people heroes when we don't want to pay them enough. We're fine with calling veterans heroes, but ask us to support them in their mental and physical health and health care for the rest of their life, and we have this great debate. We love calling teachers heroes because we ask them to be counselors and educators and security guards and parents and mentors and CFOs, all for less than what we would pay a babysitter. We love calling nurses heroes, but then we debate just how much PPE they can have in a global pandemic, right? At 14 hours of a shift, right? Hear me clearly. Veterans, teachers, nurses are heroes. What I'm saying is our actions back to them should be equally heroic in the way that we care for them. And yeah, it might mean turning the lights off and losing a bit on the bottom line to make sure that they are cared for and supported and heroically celebrated. Jesus says, he called the disciples together. And he said, if anyone wants to be my followers, let them deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and to forfeit your life? Indeed, what will you gain by, by keeping the entire world? What will you profit by gaining the world and losing yourself? Paul Tillich was a theologian in the early 20th century called faith your ultimate concern. Do you know what, do you know what God is to you? What is your ultimate concern? What is it that you're willing to offer your life toward? Or four, that is your God, is what Paul Tillich would say. He wrote this, if a group makes the life and the growth of the group its ultimate concern, it demands that all other concerns, economic well-being, health, life, family, truth, justice, and humanity, all of that to be sacrificed. This group, it could be a nation, it could be an institution, it could be a denomination, it could even be our own self. But Tillich is saying, be careful what you worship because what you worship, you become. Be careful what you worship because what you worship, you become. Are we worshiping the one who said, deny yourself, carry the cross, and follow me? What you worship, you become. Before we got to D.C., <coughs> excuse me, before we got to D.C., we went to Duke University, uh, the best seminary that United Methodism has to offer. Though we're not going to talk about basketball today. We just won't. Oh, racket time. Mm. Mm-mm. Mm. 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 Uh, we went to Duke, and uh, uh, we were like uh, 
wanted to show the kids you know, the, the chapel in the center of the campus and the Duke Gardens, and it was also 30 degrees and raining, so was, everyone was in a super mood. Let's go look at the flowers and the tulips are in bloom. Rain, 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 wind, wind, wind. Cheerful, cheerful, cheerful. Um, we loved reminiscing. Uh, we loved reminiscing as much as they hated us walking them around uh, the campus. Beautiful campus. Um, but uh, uh, that was where Will Williman was the dean of the Duke Chapel, and he left right as I was getting there. But Magre de Vega, uh, in his book, Questions That Jesus Asked, uh, recalls a story uh, that Will Williman, because Will, he was the, um, excuse me, Bishop Williman, was uh, the dean of the Duke Chapel, and one day he got a call from a very upset parent. How many teachers? How many times have you? Yeah. So it doesn't stop. This is in college, you know. This is a, you know, and and the dad was upset because the child, in his words, had thrown her degree away to go dig ditches in Haiti for Jesus. And at first I'm like, that's right. You should go dig. But then I'm also I'm also a dad and a parent, and like I'm mildly afraid. <laughs> you know. So, so uh, well, it's like, it's like the time, I remember I sat down with my dad, my chemist father, my chemist father, and he asked me, what, son, what do you want to major in? Music. And he leans in like, no, 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 what do you, what do you want to do as a career? <laughs> Music. <clears throat> so he got a call from an angry parent, uh, and the discussion went like this. She has a BS degree in mechanical engineering from Duke University, and now she's going to dig ditches in Haiti? And Williman replied, well, I doubt that she received much training from the engineering department for digging ditches, but she sounds like a quick learner. I'm sure she'll catch up. Look, the parent said, this is no laughing matter. You, completely, you are completely irresponsible for encouraging her to do this. Williman said, no, 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 wait a minute. Aren't you the one who brought her to church and had her baptized? Well, yes. And aren't you the one who brought her to church, to Sunday school, and even worship on Sunday morning? Well, yes. Aren't you the one who read Bible stories to her at night and on occasion with the entire family? And aren't you the one who paid for the mission trip and the youth group for her to go and serve people? Well, yes, but no, don't but me. It's your fault she believed all this stuff. And that she, now she's gone and thrown it away to Jesus, not mine. You're the one who introduced her to Jesus, not me. Then the father said, but all we ever wanted her to be was a Presbyterian. <laughs> and Bishop Willman replied, sorry, you messed up and made her a disciple of Jesus Christ. Right? Carrying the cross is not a great sales pitch. Come and suffer with us. <laughs> it's a terrible mantra, terrible motto, terrible sales pitch, and it's because it's not supposed to be a sales pitch. Everybody wants to get to heaven. Nobody wants to die. When we talk about carrying the cross, understand that we're reading the gospel through a lens of resurrection. As Christians, we read all scripture through a lens of resurrection as our base understanding for interpreting text. The cross was a symbol of death and destruction, but through the power of God and through the love of Jesus, it became a symbol of life and power, 
a vehicle through which we offer life to the world. When Jesus invites us to carry the cross, it's not an invitation to be sluggish or downtrodden or puritanical or to pretend to be a prophet pointing out someone else's sin, forgetting about the plank that's in your own eye. But it does mean to be sacrificial toward that which offers life to your neighbor. Jesus asked, why would people gain the world and lose their self? What do you profit? Some translations say, why would you gain the world and lose your soul? Understand, soul is your essence. It is who you are, your identity, your passion, your personality, your intellect. That's why I love the hymn, Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. Everything that I have is lifted in song to you. Put it to you this way. You know, when you have you know, someone who majored in uh, mechanical engineering and they throw it away to dig ditches in Haiti for Jesus, right? Think about it this way. The caterpillar must be the most confused animal on the planet because in its soul it is hardwired to fly. But all evidence points against it. Are you willing to build a cocoon? Are you willing to be transformed so that what is written into your soul can happen? You were built to fly, but also takes transformation. How do we get there? How do we do that? Well, McGray, in his book, writes, in his congregation, Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, they have a thing called GRIP. It's an acronym. It stands for Give Generously, Read Scripture, Invite Others to Jesus, and Pray with Confidence and Conviction. What might these remaining few weeks of Lent look like if we dedicated ourselves to to that kind of work? To, to stewardship, not just of our time and our talent, but also our wealth. Talking about dying to self, letting go of self, giving generously is the way to do that, to begin that process, so stewardship. But we are also to be about healing. I hope you've taken this opportunity in Lent to maybe put something down that is a barrier to you and to your neighbor. I hope that your self is healing in that process. We also are called, what did Jesus say? The spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. If what we're doing is not good news to the poor, it's not the gospel. Release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to bring healing to the nations. Stewardship, healing, and also invitation. We should not be ashamed or afraid to invite people to Jesus. I would love for you to also invite them to Asbury, but fundamentally, we are to invite them into a relationship with Jesus. And that can happen at the ball field, that can happen in the tow truck. That can happen while playing bells. That can happen teaching. Invite people to Jesus to share that life. I'd say it could happen at the dentist's office, but I'm not, I'm not sure about that yet. <clears throat> and then tenacity. We should be tenacious with our prayers. 
be lively, to trust, to be vocal, to cry out. If we want to change this trajectory and if we want to fly as if as as we is written into our DNA to do, we are to be about stewardship and healing and invitation and tenacity. Carrying the cross means that you aren't afraid of stewardship, healing, invitation, and tenacity. And do what you want with that acronym. Carrying the cross means you're not afraid of anything. Stewardship, healing, invitation, and tenacity. I hope the invitation to carry the cross means that you dedicate your life to that which is life-giving full of resurrection and full of hope, not for you, but for the kingdom, for those who need to know God's love, for those who need to know that they are valued and important and have a role to play in the good of all. And yes, we have to die to selfishness and die to comfort to carry that kind of hope. We just might have to turn the lights off and take a hit, the bottom line, to offer hope to our sailors that they will come home. We just might have to put our personal political ideologies aside to do what Lincoln described as to have malice toward none. Charity for all, with a firmness to the right as God allows us to see the right. So let us strive on to finish the work that we are to do, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for veterans, to care for him who have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan. To do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all of the nations. May our children hear this. May we teach them this. May we carry a cross that offers life and hope And the truth that our story does not end in death. And therefore, we shouldn't be afraid of uh, stewardship, healing, inviting, and tenacity. You don't have to be afraid of anything. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.